Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome, folks, to Making Data Simple. As always, if you'd like to reach out and let us know how we're doing, hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. My next guest, Debbie Berbicious. Your education background and experience is really around making science approachable to a wide range of audiences. So I know you to be an instructor at Stanford. You co-host Disney Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science TV show. That's where Debbie and others use knowledge of physics to explain the science behind extraordinary engineering feats. I know you've also been on the Travel Channel, Nova, CNN, Fox, NBC. I'm sure you've been on them all. If that isn't enough, you are a chief data scientist at Metis, where you lead the creation of data science training opportunities, which we'll, we'll certainly dive into, and recognized by Wall Street Journal, Ted Wired, uh, the Association, American Association of the Advancement of Science, and Oprah. There you go. If you got Oprah on your side, you're a bona fide celebrity right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I got to say one more thing. First Mexican woman to graduate from Stanford University and a PhD in physics. Is that serious? Yeah. You know, I think they said it to me more, not so much to make me feel special, but more to say like, you know what? Like there's so few women that come here and get a PhD. They haven't come from many other countries. So now it's your responsibility to really inspire and encourage other women to come and pursue their PhDs, not only at Stanford, but other places too. Well, I'm, I know you're certainly doing that. We'll, we will talk to that. So again, thank you for being here. I gave you the lead in, but please describe yourself. Give us a bit of your personal mission statement, if you would. Sure. Thank you for having me, Al. I really enjoy your podcast. I'm a big fan. I was born in Mexico City, and I was part of a small community that was very conservative. It was a nice place to come of age, but there were a lot of constraints, so to speak. You know, as a girl, I was extremely curious and inquisitive, and I kept asking the teachers and my parents questions about nature and the world. And from a very young age, they discouraged me from being too serious about pursuing a career in, in physics and math. And they said, it's not right for a woman. You know, as a girl, they said, you should pick something more feminine, like communications or marketing or, you know, be a stay-at-home mom. There's nothing wrong with any of those choices, but it just wasn't for me. And so when it came time to pick a college, I recall, Al, that I started reading stories about obscure physicists like Tycho Brahe and all these other people that I may have not understood the math at that point because I had become so insecure about my math skills. But I understood the stories of courage and being enamored with discovering things about the world. And I just thought to myself, maybe I'll be like these strange people. I won't be very social and, and I won't have a regular family life like everyone else, but I'll have my observations with me. Like Tico Brahe, I'll be locked up in a tower. And, and so, you know, my life 
didn't end up quite that way, but but those were my initial sort of escapades into what science was about. And so when it came time to go to college, I picked philosophy because I was told that philosophy, like physics, it allows you to question the world and question everything and think and talk about every single aspect of why we're here and what makes sense and what doesn't. But when I did that, I realized that I kind of sold my soul to the devil because uh, philosophy was still a little too abstract. And I really was had hunger to use math because mathematics is the language of the world, of nature. And by using mathematics with physics, you can understand things about the world that you're not able to understand with regular English spoken language. And so I ventured in philosophy to apply to schools in the U.S. because I had been told that in the U.S. you can study more than one major. And so I was extremely lucky because Brandeis University is a school in Massachusetts and they wrote to me and they said, you know what, you have good grades and you're obviously very, very passionate. So we're going to have you take an extra test and write another essay and we'll consider you for a full scholarship to attend Brandeis. And I was so happy jumping up and down because my parents probably couldn't have afforded to send me to a college in the U.S., which was at the time cost eight times what it would cost in Mexico. So I won a full scholarship. I attended Brandeis. And when I arrived, I saw many other women in my first physics course. And I met Rupesh Oja, who was a graduate student from India who became my mentor. And Rupesh basically changed my life because he talked to the, his uh, advisor in the physics department and we made a plan and he devoted his entire summer for me to cram the first two years of the physics major into one single summer so that I could finish the whole BA in two years. I was a transfer student and it was the, the amount of time that I had with my scholarship. And I always wanted to pay Rupesh for all his mentoring and tutoring. And he said to me that when he was growing up in Darjeeling, like the tea in India, there was an old man who used to climb up to his town and teach him tabla, the musical instrument, English and mathematics. And the old man said, you can never pay me back. The only way you can pay for my efforts is if you do this with someone else in the world. Like Rupesh, he passed the torch to me and now I dedicate a lot of my time to mentoring young women who like myself feel attracted to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, but who for some reason feel that they cannot achieve their dream. After that, I was lucky enough with only two years of physics to be accepted by the current Nobel Prize winner, Steve Chu, at the time in 97. And he admitted me directly to work with him at Stanford. And six years later, after a lot of effort and some failures, I was told that I became the first Mexican woman to earn the PhD in physics. Fantastic. That's a great story. You know what's interesting about that story for me is I'm sitting here while you're talking and I'm writing down a question, and the question I had, you answered. The oppression that you talked about, I was going to say, did it just inspire you to, to take a leap, or how did you overcome that? Certainly, you had a mentor someplace, yes. and then you went right into the mentor. But I guess, did you have a mentor that pushed you to go well, to university in the U.S., or was that just your willpower? 
No, it was just my willpower. And the interesting thing, and this is why I think if I could do it, anyone can do it because it's all about perseverance and having a dream and setting your goals. Because when other students called home after failing a test, the parents would be like, oh, you can do it. Don't worry. Your dad also went through a hard time. But when I would call home and say, I'm having a hard time doing my PhD or something, my parents would say the opposite. They'd be like, you see, I told you this was not for you. Now come back and live a normal life. That made me even more rebellious and, and wanting to, to really fulfill my dream and show to everyone that I respected myself and my goals more than their opinion of my abilities. And I think that is key when one is seeking success in a certain area. So you were one of those folks that somebody tells you no and you say, uh-uh, you can't tell me no. I've got a daughter like that, which is terrific. She's got a hearing deficiency. And so that's put a chip on her shoulder. And so anybody that even hints at no, she's, she's a tell to be reckoned with. I was going to say, I, I do think you point out the importance of mentorship. It's something I preach a lot in that I think we're all social beings by nature. Everyone needs a mentor. Yes. So if you can find particularly children, a mentor that says, hey, I can do this. So it's something I, I preach around career, uh, network, coaching. I've got an external coach. I know Kate has an external coach. What did, it was Rupesh, right? Yes. What did he do? I mean, outside of just meeting with you, I mean, what did he do that really, you know, kept you going, inspired you the way he did? Because I, I meet with a lot of people and say, oh, I've had a mentor before they were no good. And then I tell them, hey, there's good and bad mentors. You should learn from both of them and move on. This person did something extra special. What was it? He was a dreamer. He had left India. There was this guy who, who was kind of isolated from the sort of the business world, like didn't really care about adapting to that sort of like, oh, get a job. And he was completely absorbed with thoughts about uh, astronomy and exploring the world. And he thought about that night and day. So all of a sudden comes this student that is super passionate and is asking questions all the time. And we would take walks around campus. And he said, I wasn't the typical student that just wanted to pass the homework and get an A in class. I was really curious. And so we both enjoyed talking about quantum mechanics and the new discoveries. And so what he did for me, he went above and beyond because not only was he passionate about the subject, but he actually cared to listen to what was I missing, to all the years of built up insecurity that when I heard back home in Mexico that I was not going to be good in math, that I shouldn't do it, that physics was for geniuses, that I wasn't going to pull it off. And so he sat every day and very patiently had me do exercises. We didn't have mathematics exercises. So we didn't have time for theory and studying, you know, long books at the time. I had two months to basically cram all of the first two years of physics into. And so we sat down and on one Saturday, just derivatives, the Sunday integrals and, and you name it. And it was just a combination of patience, believing in me, praise, and, you know, making me feel that my dreams were reachable. I know you're on the Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science TV show. Yes. How did this come about? How do you end up there? What do you see as the purpose of the show? And then I want to talk to you, you know, some of the things that you're stressing and the learning that you can get from that show, if you would. Oprah Winfrey had a leadership, women in leadership conference in 2007. 
And I was told I should apply for it. I sent my project and I think there were 8,000 women that applied. And out of those, she picked 200 and we all went to her uh, Women in Leadership Conference and she selected my project, The Science of Everyday Life, as the main project. And I was the keynote speaker at the conference. And it was just amazing because in those years, if Oprah uh, liked your project, it just skyrocketed. And from there, I was on her magazine and then I met Dr. Oz and I appeared on his show talking about the physics of- Everybody you touch, you end up being on their show, it sounds like. (laughs) Rare, I guess, to find somebody who's so passionate about physics and actually likes to be on camera. I don't know. I got known as somebody who was passionate about explaining complex topics in entertaining ways. And some of my friends said, hey, there's a show called Humanly Impossible is being filmed in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, this was in 2011. And they're looking for female physicists under 35 years old that want to be on camera explaining things. And I don't know if I was the only one to show up or... (laughs) or what, but I thought, I felt I did terrible during the audition. It was about humans doing what seemed impossible. So there was a guy that got run over by seven trucks and he survived. So they would tell me, how would you demonstrate that this is like really, really hard to do? (laughs) And I would come up with, you know, equations and equipment to measure the force and this guy's chest and all these funny things. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, I definitely did terrible and they're not going to call me back. But a week later, again, I don't know if I was the only one who showed up, but they called me and I was in. So I filmed, that was my first TV show and it was so much fun. We were two co-hosts and we saw there was a blind man who came and played basketball in front of us and he rode his bicycle and just, I met incredible people. So from there, I realized how you can scale that ability to explain things and get people excited about science, I could scale it through doing a TV show. So I got really into it. And a few years later, a UK-based company called October Films also put out an ad for we're looking for scientists. And I remember I was in my tiny studio apartment in New York City, I had a script and I was all stiff and trying to follow the script for my audition. And in the end, I decided, no, I'm just going to do it by heart, like, because this is coming out terrible. And I just explained things uh, about how a trebuchet works. And I sent it right before midnight and I was in. And they called me back and we are a team of nine scientists who co-host the show, each one from a different discipline. And we explained the science behind some crazy feats that people do. So look, I know you've also done TED, which is great. You talked about outrageous acts of thinking. Yes. It'd be cool. I mean, if you can remember it, if you could kind of give us a little oversight of the TED Talk. There's a lot of misinformation about science. And a lot of people think that science is about facts. When in reality, science is about an ever-increasing approximation to the truth and to reality. So people get annoyed because they say, oh, scientists say coffee is good, but 
another paper in Italy suggests that coffee is terrible for you. So who can understand scientists, even with COVID, like many different uh, opinions? It has to do with the fact that it takes time for people to discover. And the best th- quality that a scientist can have is doubt, doubting everything they see and being skeptical about authoritative figures that tell us facts. And so what happened in France is that this woman said, oh, I understand quantum mechanics because it's about something real that's non-real and without really understanding quantum mechanics. I think it was Feynman that said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, that means you don't understand it. But she had a very sort of practical way of of saying, you know, this is exactly how things work. And in this town in the Amazon, in this tribe in the Amazon, people trade without money and they are very quantum mechanical, the reality. And so I got into a fight with her because I said, you know, that's a beautiful story, but it really just doesn't have anything to do with quantum mechanics. And we got into a fight or discussion about language and can you take borrow words from one discipline and apply them into another discipline? And, you know, can you do that? Should you do that? And unfortunately, that leads to a great amount of misinformation. So my talk had to do with instances in science where you can have an outrageous thought, an idea, and that idea can turn out to be true or false. Whereas you can have a pretty well-accepted idea by society, but that idea can have no evidence behind it. So I'll give you an example. Dr. Semmelweis was a doctor in the 1800s. Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, had not been born yet. And so we didn't know anything about germs and about washing our hands. And this doctor realized that after there were doctors that work with pregnant women, helping them give birth. But before that, they were in the basement and they were doing work, research work with cadavers, with dead bodies. And so the doctor said, I think you guys should wash your hands because I'm starting to observe a correlation between the people that are working with cadavers and then they come up to the obstetrics department and there are infections going on. And, you know, now we would consider that idea not outrageous at all. In fact, you know, it's nobody would even question a doctor washing their hands in between patients. However, at the time, this was such an outrageous idea that the poor doctor was put in a mental hospital, I believe, and died there with everyone making fun of him and thinking he had gone crazy. So you can have historically ideas that are appear outrageous. They're not well accepted. However, they are true. We got to pivot. I could stay on these forever, by the way, but you're chief data scientist at Metis. And yes. again, that's where you lead the growth of data science training opportunities, et cetera, that you've got a passion for data science education, and data literacy. Talk to me about data literacy. What does it mean? What's the definition? I know there's such a thing as digital literacy versus data literacy. Help us out. Data literacy is defined as the ability to read, work with, analyze, and argue with data. And it's a skill. So that definition, by the way, came out of MIT. And basically, it's saying that in contrast to Digital literacy, which we most of us that have a phone, uh, uh, digital apps, 
are quite digitally literate. What that means is that we use a lot of data-based applications such as Yelp and Google Maps and Waze. All of this, uh, we use them with you know, quite easily without really understanding the data that goes behind it, the fact that uh, Google is pulling constantly information from your device uh, to build a a map in real time and and to know, you know, traffic patterns for ways and whatnot. Uh, So we may not understand the assumptions of the models, yet we use them very easily. That's digital literacy. Instead, data literacy is understanding what is data, which data is available for answering different questions, how do I interpret the insights that come out of this data? Do they make sense? Does the person that owned the data, does the institution have an agenda and that's why the data seems biased? Should I include other statistically significant groups in my sample, in my pilot program? so that my algorithm is as unbiased as possible? Why is it important to secure and protect data? And how can I create, uh, automate certain tasks and create insights in my organization, in my company that are data-driven? That is, just back to the example of science, that have evidence. So, you know, if a lot of people are searching for a certain keyword during COVID, And then Google takes that data, which is all evidence for what people are worried about. Critical thinking, I believe, is one of the most important skills of today. And we are not preparing our kids and our young people to have critical thinking. We are, in many cases, preparing them to learn how to code by just learning how to operate a language. But we're forgetting that that language and learning how to code It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. We need people to learn how to code and all that so that they can solve problems. And so to solve a problem, we need more data literacy at every level of the company. You have to make people aware of the data that drives their decisions. So for example, nowadays at the airport, we have janitors, uh, when they clean the restrooms, they are being data-driven. Why? Because when all of us go to the restroom and we press those happy faces or frowny faces that uh, you know kind of collect data and send a signal to the janitor, so instead of going and cleaning fixed schedule, like in the old days, now you have to go and clean when you get enough frowny faces because that's a signal that's coming out. So at every level, from that level, all the way to CEOs and decision makers in organizations that have to empower their teams by giving them access to the right data at the right time and in the right context so that they can make decisions and things can run much more efficiently. For example, if you are a company that deals with uh, repairing uh, refrigerators and you get, you're in a call center, if you make the person in the call center that's not very technical, but you give them a platform that allows them to know uh, all the data they need in an easy way uh, with some, you know, product, evangelization, that is, you you make them aware of how to use the platform through lunch and learns and 
whatnot at the company, then they're much more able to uh, make decisions in real time instead of asking their manager, like, okay, I'm going to repair that, but I'm going to also optimize the path that the repair person is going to take today and whatnot, rather than slowing everything down because we just don't have access to the data. And we've seen it over and over how many companies, for example, Stitch Fix, which is a very data-driven fashion rental clothing organization Mm -hmm. that is super data-driven. And that's why it's building such loyalty with their customers, because they have embedded the data literacy practices at the most basic level of the organization all the way to the CEO and, and the managers. So I think we're seeing that very successful companies are doing uh, really well uh, by training their employees in how to use data and how to argue with data and question things. I I actually give a talk called Statistics and the Art of Deception because there's so many ways in which uh, we can be deceived by graphs and charts that we see on newspapers, on TV, People have agendas and they may want to want us to perceive the effects of COVID as smaller than they actually are and things like that. And so to train people, citizens and em- employees to read those charts and to have confidence in the findings that model is showing, I think it's incredibly beneficial for a company. Here's what I kind of got from that you're telling us, hey, there's a pervasive problem today where models are being created and acted upon without the data literacy, such that false decisions are being made on a regular basis. Yes. Is there any examples of major failure you would say, or you could talk to that say, hey, here's what happens when you don't take care? Yeah, absolutely. For example, the airbags in cars, the first team that designed them had no women engineers in the team. They were designed, all of them, and tested with men. And so the size of the body and the motion of the body during a crash was all based on a certain body that was more typically male. And so they started to notice that a lot of women were having accidents with airbags and choking and horrible things happened until they included women in the team to have a more diverse perspective. This is why diversity and inclusion in technology is so important. Uh, There are other examples. Facebook had a failure recently with their algorithm that recognizes who's in the picture. So we talk a lot about bias here at IBM. Uh, We get it. In fact, we've got a product and I created a product or I was part of the team. The the team did all the work, of course, to create a product called OpenScale that detects bias, et cetera, keeps models in production. But do you see data literacy bias as the biggest pain point or cautionary area in AI or just one of many? I would say one of many. I'd say that it's a big pain point because when you put raw data in the hands of people who don't know how to interpret the data and create a model that has as unbiased as you can assumptions, then you have a disaster like we currently have with COVID data being interpreted in a million different ways and the public being sort of upset at all of this mess. And you also have a lot of issues of, of when you have experts having obscure algorithms, for example, black box type uh, deep learning that uh, is incredible at 
recognizing and differentiating images from one another, but may have inherent biases that we don't know about because we don't know how the algorithm is, is working exactly. So there are many different problems that one has to look out for with AI. Fair enough. And I know you do a lot of training. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about data science. I mean, if I, I just looked up the definition real quick, but yeah. you're the scholar, not me. If I look at a Wikipedia, it says data science is an interdisciplinary field that uses scientific methods, processes, algorithms, and systems to extract knowledge and insights from structured or unstructured data. It's related to data mining, deep learning, and big data. Do you think that's, that's okay? Yes. I like Hillary Mason's definition. Uh, she's a renowned data scientist. And she says it's the combination of, of analytics and the development of new algorithms. And I would add the communication part, the insights of the algorithms. So tell me more about the communication. In the past, we used to think when we modeled things that, you know, there was a clear differentiation between the nerds, so to speak. I worked in Wall Street, for example, and they called us quants and we were always back office, which meant not client facing. And uh, there was no need for these quants and, and quantitative people to communicate the models. All you had to do is come up with a pricing of a derivative that's very complex to calculate and give it to someone in the trading floor. And that's it. Nowadays, data science is very, very much, I would even say 40% of it is communication because if you cannot convince the stakeholders in an organization that the data insights that you came up with are going to help the goals of the organization, you may as well have just wasted that time because we need to convey to people why is it important, how does it affect the PNL, how does it affect uh, the world in the context that is happening. And I say that because when I first joined, I thought it was like science. Sometimes in physics or in biology, we research things just to know what they are without any practical applications. However, data science is very much embedded in the practice uh, of business. And if you can't succinctly and practically explain what the uses of your model are, then again, it, it's not even considered data science. It's not a successful project. How do you go from physicist to data scientist? How do you make that transition so seamlessly? Yeah. So physics is an interesting career choice because after the Cold War, when the U.S. had large departments uh, of physics because, you know, everybody was trying to build the atomic bomb and whatnot. But after that, the department started shrinking because there was no longer this need for physicists. The money went to health, so biology departments grew and whatnot, and physics departments have been shrinking and uh, consistently like endowed chairs disappear when the person uh, retires whatnot and so what happened is a lot of physicists couldn't find jobs and they started going to wall street that's in the 70s there were uh, i think there still are about a thousand physicists in wall street and then data science came about as another popular career choice because it turns out that the mathematics that we study in physics, and a lot of us physicists work with data. 
In fact, I gave a talk in Cambridge University about what physics can learn from data science and what data science can learn from physics, because we physicists have been doing pretty hardcore data science with the Large Hadron Collider, CERN, uh, you know, analyzing particle collisions. We've used uh, data, enormous databases and big data techniques to do that, and also in astrophysics and, and all of that. So a lot of the, the skills are transferable to data science. The programming, the mathematics, the problem-solving uh, thinking skills, etc. So it's kind of a natural transition when you can't find jobs in academia. A lot of physicists end up going to data science, or simply because they like it more. The salaries are also three times as much, so it's it's quite attractive. <laughs> I, like many people, I took a boot camp, and that's what we do at Metis. Took a four-month boot camp, where what I learned mostly was how to put names to what I, I already knew how to do, what does that mean, and what are the applications in data science, and how to work with different data, not just numbers, but now words and images and sounds. So it, it's a easy transition, I would say. So speaking of transition, this is a good segue into what training is required. You're providing the training. I, I got to presume that you're a huge influencer on what, how to train, and what are the biggest gaps that you see in the larger training that's provided today. I mean, I'm a believer in continuous learning, of course. Data science is one of those areas. But can you describe the training you feel like, hey, you've got to get this, then you can move on to this, 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 and here's how you continue to learn and don't forget this. I feel incredibly proud of the curriculum that we've built at Metis. I, in fact, taught the boot camp in San Francisco about a year and a half ago. And I must say... Uh, we have worked really hard to iterate on that curriculum to not only, you know, keep all that you should know, all the basics in there, because in three months, it's a 12-week program, people have to start jobs in data science and they have to at least know the, the basic skills. We have kept that, but not only that, we have been bringing new technologies, new developing tools to the program so that we are we remain cutting edge. We used to do visualization in D3. We no longer do that. You know, every quarter we take, we check the curriculum, we make sure it's still, you know, up to date. And what's more important is that we use that basis curriculum to, uh, from there, do our corporate training, which is nowadays an area uh, of a large focus of Metis, where we get hired by corporations, whether in, in healthcare, in IT, hedge funds, that want, instead of hiring data scientists, they see that it's more cost-effective to upskill their workforce, their IT department or not, with some skills of it can range from automation, you know, not transferring from Excel to Python, or it could be something, you know, much more sophisticated. But we train corporations and some of the skills that they ask us a lot about are not the fancy stuff like deep learning and again, all these like super cutting edge uh, data science techniques. No, they are actually more concerned with getting real good value of automation so and uh, people working with databases so like sql is a very popular skill and uh, we teach it in our boot camp they want different things for different people so they they want to use platforms that are already 
everything's in the platform, like Tableau that helps you just press a button for people who are not super technical. And they want that person to be able to make decisions based on that data. Of course, they still keep the higher level researchers, you know, getting access to more sophisticated things. But in general, what we see is that people just want to learn how to make use of the data that they have to make better decisions. And we even have a data literacy course that we offer uh, now. It's all online, and it's a really, really strong course. I got to believe Tableau, though, not picking on Tableau by any means, any reporting analytics like that must drive you a little bit crazy because doesn't it lend itself to the lack of data literacy? In other words, people just clicking and making decisions versus really understanding what they're making a decision on? That's like everybody's attitude in the beginning and I was a purist and I was always saying like this is so annoying but it's probably the same thing that people thought when washing machines came into the household or computers this beautiful sophisticated machine that only belongs at MIT lab and to launch rockets all of a sudden it's going to be at the hands of everyone and they're going to make a mess and misinform everyone because now they can do calculations. And I think there's an evolution of technology where we just have to accept as it becomes simpler, it starts to gather more users and more attention from uh, people who are not technical. And yes, more mistakes will be made, but you have to also focus on all the positive aspects of it which are if you teach people well how to calibrate, how to make the right assumptions, this is why it's very important to have a data evangelist in your organization that goes to the non-technical people and says, hey, every week, come with your questions. Let's talk about this. Who owns the data? What's up with the data, etc." Accompanied by that, I think Tableau and other tools can be very powerful. So you got to complement that with those that understand that data literacy and are uh, kind of working with the business users on a regular basis to make sure that they don't forget. We have now health tech telling people everything, right? I mean, I, I can get my pressure, blood pressure levels, my uh, blood sugar level, my weight, like all kinds of details of my health. Who knows? A lot of people in the hands of people that don't know what they're reading and interpreting. A lot of people are over, you know, overdoing their vitamin intake or taking stuff that they shouldn't be taking. And of course, there's a danger to making sophisticated assessments available to the general public. But I also think that the more we use these things, the more literate people have to become and society will progress as a whole. What makes the perfect data science implementation in a company? I think the perfect data science implementation in a company is one that follows four steps. The first one is awareness. Make people at the lowest levels of the organization aware of the data. And I'm talking everyone, like people who clean the offices, the HR department, people who are non-technical, people who interact, uh, you know, in the cafeteria, everyone aware of what data is and what kind of data is being recorded by every sale and whatnot. The second step is to give the right platforms and the right tools at the right time for decision makers in the company. Again, these are managers who tend to be somewhat technical, but not as technical as a data scientist. 
but they're the ones that make the decisions on an everyday basis that should be based on data. The third one is to keep your super sophisticated R&D team in line with cutting edge tools and sending them to conferences and participating in the ecosystem of data science so that they can keep your tools and your models cutting edge and up to date. And that will fulfill sort of the three level data literacy program. And then finally, the, the fourth step, which is the most important, is scaling all those three together. And that goes from the top all the way down. Scaling involves having sort of a happy way of involving people, not with data, not making it seem like, ugh, this is so annoying. I'm not quantitative. I really don't enjoy these boring math things. It's actually uh, having fun lunch and learns, having an evangelist at the company that stops at each everybody's desk or at the cafeteria or talks to people, hey, do you have the tools that you need? What problems are you encountering? How can we help you? How can we make your job easier and better? And having each person that is already trained talk to their own team and training them as well so that the, uh, the data literacy can scale at each level in the organization. I do want to ask a few questions yes. about you, if you sure. will. I have three daughters. I know Kate, our producer, has one. That's four between us. The interesting thing is I think I made the opposite mistake that you started with is because none of my daughters want to be into tech, though I wanted them to be. Yeah. <laughs> I think my push kind of pushed them away, yeah. if you will. Now they're in health and I got one pharmacy, one law, the other one is audiology. That's the one that has the yeah. hearing issue. So we're, we're doing okay. My question is, what is your standing advice to girls, particularly young girls and women about science and how to find your passion, stay within it? All the advice you didn't receive, what would that be? What I tell women always is do not let anybody, not the media, not your parents, not your friends, not society, tell you that you cannot achieve your dream. Fight for them because they matter. What does a, a physicist and data scientist do for fun? <laughs> well, these days during COVID, I have dance parties with my toddler and my one-year-old baby, and we read physics books. I'm serious. Like We, we really uh, do have quantum mechanics for babies. These are very fun books, and we have fun with it. But no, really, I'm just you know, like regular people, I like going out, going to parks, exercising, reading books, enjoying my family, traveling, all sorts of things. How do you find the time for all those outlets? <laughs> that is really difficult. I've been told that I have a lot of energy and that I'm very hard on myself. So that produces a very nasty combination of somebody who's always unhappy about the amount of work that uh, she gets done and feels frustrated. So it makes me work more hours when people in my family are sleeping. So I have to work hard to balance that and really remind myself to take breaks. And now with COVID, that aspect, I must say, has been amazing because I enjoy being with my kids so much that it forces me to take this beautiful break to just laugh and play games and 
It's just right there in front of me. I don't even have to make an effort to seek an activity. I resemble that remark. I have the same problem. I actually tell myself, it's okay. I got to give myself permission to relax. Yes. It's yes. okay that I don't, I'm not going to do that today. Yeah. It's okay. You're just wired that way. You do writing, you do talks because that, that helps to learn. Because I can see every question I have, which I could keep going. I mean, there's some guests you have on and, and other guests like yourself that, man, you just, we could keep going forever yeah. and, and have a chat. It's like, it's truly like we're sitting at a bar or something. We could just keep going yeah. forever. I want to let your listeners know if there are any women interested, I'm actually uh, in the process of creating a course teaching women how to accelerate their success in STEM and really how to use all these methodologies and thinking to get uh, negotiate job offers, to uh, overcome imposter syndrome and all kinds of things to, to help them have real success. Uh, where can folks reach you if they're looking to reach out sure. to I, I have a pretty active social media life. So I'm on LinkedIn, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Debbie Bere, D-E-B-B-I-E, B as in boy, E-R-E. And on Facebook, you can find me as well. Debbie, you are fantastic. Thank you for being here. I learned a ton. All right. For all you listeners, as always, appreciate you listening. Rate us and hit us almartintalksdate at gmail.com. Obviously, we listen and we get great, great guests uh, like Debbie. So thank you guys. And thanks again, Debbie. I'll talk to you all next thank time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and 